Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 57 with my friend, Katie. Katie is not my friend. We're friends now. But when when I recorded this, I did not know who Katie was. And this was such a fantastic, pleasant experience. Uh, I mean, when you when you meet somebody where you're like, oh, we're going to be friends and have a great connection and have a lot of stuff in common, like you can kind of witness that in real time on this episode. And I'm so excited about it. Katie is a friend of mine's sister, and she just wrote a book called Taranga, A Story of Belonging. And it's about her time in Senegal and uh, really just diving into different cultures and and kind of being more open about yourself and what you don't know. And um, there's a billion different themes you could pull out of it. I was I was lucky enough to get to read some of the book before we did the podcast and I highly recommend you get it now. It is available on Amazon and paperback or Kindle and it's just fantastic. And this, the stuff that she's doing and her, her market, which she'll talk about um, where she sells a lot of handmade items. It's really great. And, and I hope you guys enjoy it. And I'll tell you more about it after the episode and also stick around for another ask a therapist session with Jenny Helms any parent, I recommend listening to this one. Uh, we're talking about kids going to therapy and what, what that's like and what the parents can expect and uh, privacy and, and all that stuff. So without further ado, because this is a long one, guys, but worth every minute of it, this is my friend, Katie. Hi. Hey, Justin. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really excited to be talking to somebody besides my dog. <laughs> Tis the time. Yeah, this is uh, that's, that's kind of how this is working right now, right? I usually start out with how I know you. And in this case, uh, I think you're, you're only one of two people that I don't know. Um, I, know you're, I know your sister, and she's the one that connected us. I worked with her at Longhorn, but uh, I've, I've never met you. Uh, we went to the same high school. I, I was just gonna say out. we've probably been in the same space on multiple occasions and yet we never knew because we were drowning in that huge school together well i think i might have been out when you came in oh were you in my sister's grade or I, one above oh see you're just flattering me now uh <laughs> i graduated in 2001 so oh shit okay yeah so you're five years ahead yeah, so, so i was were... um middle school when you were finishing up high school yeah Making okay. me feel, making me feel real good about myself. Um, <laughs> I, I want to do things a little differently, but not too differently. I mean, you've already, in talking with you, we, you identified some things we've had in common throughout throughout our our pasts. Um, and yeah. I want to talk things. to you about what you're doing now and everything. And I want, I'd love to take up a, a lump of time with that. But I do want to start kind of in the beginning. Um, because you have Heather's your sister. Do you? Have, yep. You don't have any other siblings, do you? Nope, just no. Heather. Um, so, what's it like growing up in the in the household there with, the, with your older sister and and you said your parents divorced when you were like 11, 12? Uh, yeah, it was a uh, ten, eleven ish. So, like between so like end of I think it was like announced at the end of fourth grade, okay. and then things happened fifth grade and. Uh, 
it's all blurry because it's also stuff I have really blocked out. Okay, um, yeah. I, I can relate. So like, yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm really glad I listened to, um, I've listened to like five of the episodes um, ever since learning about your podcast. I'm really enjoying them. I just listened to the one about anxiety and I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to choose what to talk about? And there's so much I want to discuss. But to circle back, original question, uh, growing up with Heather, everything is kind of defined by the divorce, like things that happened before the divorce and things that happened after the divorce. So I think that just like my nieces right now, seeing them just like loving on each other playing, I think Heather and I had that too. Um, but I also like, I feel like most of my memories start around the divorce and that's, there's a lot of work to be done here still with like unpacking things yeah. and like just, just recently with my therapist of like two years, did we even broach the mom stuff because she and I haven't talked for nine months or had a good relationship for 20 years. So I actually asked for like two extra sessions last week because I'm like, I'm ready to talk about it. And um, just yesterday was the third day of doing that. So like, I'm happy to be fresh, on the other yeah, side of that. Fresh wound, I'm sure. Yeah. Ooh. And <laughs> it's also like today my the editor for my books sort of like said, I'm done. And then I like watched the inauguration and I'm like, this is good energy to have before a podcast interview. Um, but Heather was, you know, two years older than me. Um, we, I think, had a great relationship until the divorce when just like everything became bad. Um, and well, I imagine like two kids also, are trying to take that out in different ways and creating different yeah. coping mechanisms. And yeah. And she was like, you know, two years ahead of me at that age is like, okay, I'm 11. She's 13. She's now a teenager and she's like a foot and a half taller than everybody. And she, you know, is like really great at volleyball. And basically she just started to outpace me at a pace that like I hated. And so I was mean to all of her friends and I was really hurting and like, couldn't cope with everything going on. And then she was like being social and going out and she was hurting too in her own ways that like to this day, I'm sure I still don't know all the ways in which she hurt and yeah. was struggling too. But we like also are the only two people on this planet that can understand what it was like to go through all that. So we do talk about it a little bit. Um, but it's also a, a little bit like undiscovered uncharted territory that, um, we thought, at least I thought before it's better to leave it buried. Don't think about it. Just, yeah. you know, sweep it under the rug. And then it's like, oh, isn't that interesting for the past, like, 20 years, all of these, like, physical things you've struggled with that are definitely rooted in, you know, the history <laughs> that you yeah. don't want to think about. So as a future therapist, I'm sure this is, like, all sorts of, like, things are coming oh, it, to mind. Yeah, about, I like, jumped on uh, board uh, the manifestations of... of adversity in childhood and how that like mm. impacts you as an adult physically and health wise. And yeah. that's like where I find causation for, I have an autoimmune disorder and I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely from that. Uh, <laughs> right. but I, I'm curious. So you have a book coming out. Uh, is it Taranga? Did I pronounce that right? Yeah. Taranga. Yes. Uh, when does that come out? So if all goes well within the next seven to 10 days, it'll okay. be available as an ebook. And I guess by the time this podcast is yeah. published, it will be available um, awesome. both on Amazon and here locally. I am at a farmer's market every Saturday um, because I have a small business where I actually like sell handmade items um, that I make and my friend who's featured in this book makes. And so you can buy the book there as well once it is printed. Nice. It's kind of uh, crazy to say out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Uh <laughs> And I want to talk more about that, but I want to, I, I was, I read the, you were, you were gracious enough to share it with me 
early and uh, i i was reading the the forward is that the right yeah yeah, yeah, I have like yeah. a, I have like a note and an introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your 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 obsession with Harry Potter books, and I'm wondering, <laughs> yes. did you was that one of your coping mechanisms? Is kind of burying yourself in, in books and oh, just yeah. kind of being hundred percent solo. Yeah. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I re I read the first Harry Potter book 24 times before I even <laughs> graduated high school, and I would keep a tally on the inside. And uh, it got cut, but my original first chapter was about getting specifically teased for that um, because it was my escape. It was definitely reading in general was like my first coping mechanism, like big coping mechanism. Um, and then that became travel. But yeah, Harry Potter was was good timing for me. <laughs> I imagine reading served you well though, like academically and, and maybe your imagination at least too. Cause yeah, I mean, it primed me maybe for becoming a, a teacher. I did that for 10 years. I taught ESL English as a second language. And then I taught various like communication skills courses related yeah. to second language. Um, so it, it, it was helpful to have that, that yeah. love and passion of reading, um, in the beginning. Uh, I have one more subject I want to really tackle before we move on to your adult life. Um, yeah. I'm curious the role religion played in your life mm -hmm. growing up. <sighs> me too. <laughs> well, let me start by saying recently, very recently, like a week ago, um, because I moved to SoCal now, so we get to talk about things out here. <laughs> um Somebody gave me the gift of the term religious injury because I explained to her, she's a therapist slash meditation instructor slash like does so many things. Um, and after I explained to her kind of the short story, she's like, oh, you have a religious injury. And I was yeah. like, you know, and you have that moment of like, you just succinctly like just summarized like it. Um, but yeah, the role of religion. Um, well, what would you, I, what, I'm sorry, what would you define as a religious injury? What, what did you... How did that hit so hard with you? What is that? I came out the other side of, you know, various experiences with Christianity um, really hurt. And I might even say like damaged, but I'm, I'm still figuring out now how I want to talk about it. And actually this is going to be one of the next memoirs I write because I, I wouldn't have previously called it that because I'm so used to being like, Oh, well, it was my fault. I should have done it differently. Even when I was like still trying really hard to like make Catholicism fit and then Christianity and then just like anything that was, you know, one of the, the theistic religions. I remember it was always like turning it inward. Oh, it's your fault for not making it work. It's your fault for having doubts. It's your fault. And I started to get messaging around this from leaders in the church and from the Catholic church to non-denominational Christian church back in Michigan, that like, I basically wasn't doing it right. If I was having these doubts, if I was feeling the way I was feeling, well, pray more, do more, you know, live more Christ-like, like just all sorts of generic language surrounding like, um, well, all sorts of language that pointed back to me as the, you know, faults, that there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And that, that fucks you up <laughs> when you're trying so hard to believe and do the right thing. And all I ever wanted was to be a good person. All I ever wanted was to make people happy, make my parents and community and church happy. And I, I couldn't do it without losing myself entirely because essentially I was living very inauthentically trying to wear shoes that weren't mine, a coat that didn't fit. Like I, I gave it a good effort. You know, I still haven't talked in depth with most of my family about this, but they know, like I, I moved to California and like dyed my hair kind of pink and stopped <laughs> teaching. So <laughs> they kind of telltale signs, it. of course. Uh -huh. um, 
no, but with some of them gradually of like, you know, we, we skirt around it. We talk about it um, a little, but mostly haven't had explicit uh, conversations about it. So I just decided to write a book and publish it and they can read it. And then we don't have to talk about it. Amen. Right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, I will. And I don't know if I'm in the first or the 900th person to tell you this, but uh, it is 110% within your uh, rights to do that. Cause I, I like, on my, you listen to my podcast episode and I talked about being sexually abused when I was 11 and my mom didn't know that and we don't yeah. have like the best relationship but so that was her first time finding out and I like yeah. really beat myself up ahead of time about like oh I should talk to her about it I don't want to and then I, I told my therapist and and another and the, and the show therapist about it and they're like it's your story. Like you have no obligation to like have that discussion with her. Yes. And I was like, oh, cool. Like it's good hearing that from other people because yeah, I wouldn't so believe it if liberating. I said it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so freeing to essentially kind of be given permission to like be in the driver's seat of your own life. And like, like I always feel like I owe everybody everything. This came yeah. up the other day. Like, why are you doing that for them? Or you don't have to do that. Or like, it's this it's still that training in me to like go to to act like that um but now i have an awareness i didn't previously have because of years of therapy and i have you know i i would say a, a, an okay meditation practice and and this is all stuff we can talk about down the road with like how that relates to panic disorder and anxiety and depression all the things you know that i've struggled with but like all those words also weren't even like allowed really or like or recognized in my household like yeah. you know having all of that go on so, but yeah, I could go off in a million tangents. Well, here, that's so. and that's kind of the direction I wanted to go with the religion thing. Is like, what what does that look like in your household? I mean, uh, and I, I ask this for people that haven't read your book yet. Obviously, there's uh, you yeah. you talk about the missionary stuff in the beginning, and yeah. that kind of like struck a chord with me because I it, religion interests me. I'm not a religious person, and so when yeah. anybody carries out anything from the simplest task to like war in the name of, of their own religion. It's always like very fascinating to me. Um, yeah, same. And so I wonder like, was that, I don't want to use the word indoctrination cause I'll get hate mail, but was that, uh, in your household growing up, like were both your parents religious? Um, were, were you guys like a big, you know, church Wednesday and Sunday family? Like what, what did that look like? And how did you end up in the position to be doing that sort of work at such a young age? Yeah. So, I would say we went to church on Sundays, um, Catholic mass to be specific. That was more influence from my dad's side. And it was something that years later, um, like when I was about 14 and I said, I just can't do it anymore. I just cannot, it doesn't make sense. Like I would always sit down and like look at the priest and he'd be reading and I'm like, these are words in English. I cannot, like, I just cannot understand them. He's like reading from the old Testament. It's like, you know, not in everyday English. And I, and I would feel like every Sunday, an hour of my life, I couldn't get back. And yet this was supposedly like it, like, this is God's word. And this is, you know, the time that you worship. And I, I meanwhile, I couldn't understand any of it. And I didn't, it didn't make sense. And it started to make me mad because I hated standing for so long, singing these songs and doing all these gestures that I didn't understand either. And I just feel like, I, I started to get really mad. I was also four, week 14 and this was post-divorce. So like things were already headed, you know, <laughs> yeah. in a crazy direction, but both my parents were on board and I'd say just like, you know, not ultra or super religious at all, but like adamant about going. And then others within my family were more, um, 
I'd say devout and what, but like, here's the thing that like really like the, what do they call Let's throw a wrench into things was on my mom's side. Um, we had Baptists. Um, so I would go to like church camp at like Baptist church camp. And then I would go to like Catholic church camp and so you were doing camps I think too. I was doing camps and I like loved camp, but I, I also like at, from a young age, um, was like scared to believe like it like fear was a tool used to get people to subscribe to your the faith that they're yeah. you know advertising in their in their institutions and so i remember um this is definitely a story that's going to make it into a future book when i went to my first like baptist summer camp summer school um we were going to sleep in um like a cabin and we had just done fun stuff outside all day and i was feeling good and i remember the counselor was standing in the middle of all of the bunk beds and she's like praying and we're all like going to sleep and she's like and if there's anybody here who would you know hasn't yet you know accepted jesus christ into their lives you know everybody close their eyes and raise your hand and i'll like come and say the lord's or that we can you know get your soul saved eternally so you don't burn on fire forever and i was like my hand shot up and I was like, me, 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 me. Um, even though like I had been baptized, I had, I had, I I thought I was checking like all the boxes, but every night that she did that. And then other times throughout the day, whenever there was an opportunity to be saved, I took it because I always felt like I did it wrong. I always felt like I said something wrong or maybe like in my intent, like God knows everything, right? He can see everything. So I was definitely skeptical and doubting, but I was terrified at the thought of eternal damnation and so yeah kind of it was kind of rough growing up with one foot in each of those but i i did peel away um when i started to rebel around 14 15 um in the sense that rebelling was like going to a different church because it wasn't an option at the time to like not believe in god or you know the letting go of the idea of eternity too um which i ultimately kind of have done um of there being a traditional heaven or hell i you know that that's a big thing to take away from a teenager or, or a human in general. So yeah. I wasn't ready to let go. I went to a non-denominational church where they spoke in tongues and were like on fire for Jesus. And I went Wednesdays and Sundays and I, you know, I've narrowly escaped probably like being part of a cult, if I'm honest. Yeah. But I did go on a mission trip um, because I was told repeatedly that I just need to be more involved in the church. I just need to do this more. I need to like, it kept having language or surrounding, like do it better, believe harder, believe better. You know, if you were actually living the way you're supposed to be living, you wouldn't be having this pain, these doubts. And that's also around the time I started to suffer really severely from depression. Big surprise. Funny how those two yeah. are tied together. Yeah, uh, good timing. I'm, I'm curious now, looking back, what your views are on uh, missionary work, like the stuff you did, and not in the way of like, they're you know building a school, but like in the way of uh, whatever you believe, you should believe this instead because we came here and we we know better and like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just um, do you have a time limit? Like this is something that, (laughs) you know, I even like include a link in the back of my book for those interested in learning more about like the harmful effects of volunteerism, which is, I think, just another word for missionary trips, because there are so many 
I won't say all, but many that are, you know, two weeks where you go and you, you, you spread God's word, but you also like, we went on two safaris. We stopped in Paris for like a 12 hour layover. We went to the Louvre. We saw the Eiffel tower. Like, so there's, there are components of that. Um, but missionary work in and of itself, I, I hate, I don't want to generalize and like minimize anybody's like super transformative life experience right now. If they have spent five years somewhere doing like on the ground work, that's like genuinely helped a community or something. But I will say these short stints with really young um, individuals, these short stints are doing more harm than good. And imagine, you know, it's like every two weeks there's turnover of, of people, let's say, that are coming into an orphanage that wouldn't exist if it weren't for those missionaries or volunteerists going in. Um, and more than 95% of those fam of kids have families there, but they're sent to this orphanage because they get food and clothes and education, which they might not necessarily get, but they would be with their family. It's a yeah. very... Like you could do a whole podcast episode about this oh, if you, you wanted to. Oh, you could probably to. do it. I'm sure there's <laughs> a whole podcast that are solely devoted to the subject. Yeah, just, yeah I was just curious but what like, your, your kind of your worldview on it was. Being someone that has done it and then come out of it and kind of uh, done like gone to that continent with a completely different uh, yeah perspective. So Mindset. yeah. Yeah, the way that I did it when I was 17 years old and went to South Africa for two weeks is a is a hurtful way to try and spread your belief. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to s spread your beliefs, but there needs to be a certain level of maturity, training, life experience, um, on the ground connections with locals, like before you embark on something like that. In the same way you would look at like businesses that, you know, where you're trying to help out local communities and you want them to be sustainable and ethical. I think all of that should apply to this type of work too. Yeah. Awesome. But it doesn't. That's just, yeah, I was just curious. Um, so, picking up kind of where you where you left off there and where the depression kind of hit in i mean what what does it look like at your high school years and then graduating high school because you went you went to u of m is that right i did my undergrad at michigan state university oh, oh, and oh, no. don't tell me <laughs> it's okay because u of m paid the bills later my last teaching job was at the university of michigan that's where i, I saw u of m there. i knew i saw it somewhere yeah it's not exactly <laughs> You did your research, but I never, I didn't tell you where I studied. So, you know, love me or hate me. I, I don't care. Like, I've never been like one of those people that's like, I bleed green. Um, yeah. I love it there. I also loved you about like, it's, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. But as, um, high school went, I mean, what was that like for you socially at home? Uh, oh, academically. Man. So academically, I mean, I was kind of bored. I, I remember in your one of your episodes, like you said, you know, you didn't perform academically well because you're just so bored and, and it was more of a social thing for you in yeah. high school. Is that right? Yeah, it was, so, I was 100% like having social connections was a coping mechanism for me. So I didn't yeah. give a fuck about the grades. <laughs> Yeah, for me, um, like, I wouldn't say it was necessarily easy, like, I, so, certain subjects like the arts came easily because starting in middle school when my whole life got uprooted and I, you know, the divorce happened and I lived with my mom for two years and that went so badly that I called my dad one day and said, I need to come home. Can you pick me up? And then I lived with him thereafter. My sister came a few months after and then I switched schools, just totally tanked academically. I went from being like in all of the pullout classes, like in elementary school, middle school, I'd get on the buses and go to like smart kid camp for the day or we'd have the math enrichment lady come and like me and the t two twin girls in my fifth grade class would like sit over in the side and 
And like, I didn't even understand what that was at the time. Like, cool, we get to play with like geometric, colorful shaped things. Or maybe it was actually like the opposite. Maybe I thought I was in like the pullout smart group and they're like, this is a circle. Um, <laughs> no, but like I did really well until I did it. Um, everything, all of, I was in like seventh, eighth grade level classes for math and science. And then in seventh grade, when I switched schools, they pulled me back to all of the normal levels. And I think I even went back one um, with, with math because I, I don't remember I just had one teacher who was like I can't handle your shit you're like this fucked up kid right now you're crying in my class um go sit in the back and I'm gonna transfer you to like the, the easy math tomorrow and like she didn't give me a chance whereas like my English teacher saw what was going on and she literally gave me the voice of Hermione so I was struggling it was visible and that teacher got to choose you know who was who would read Harry Ron and Hermione when we would read Harry Potter aloud um, that was also how I got introduced to Harry Potter, I think. Yeah. And so I got to be, you know, for a few minutes, every class, um, Hermione, this like, you know, she wasn't liked because of her academic intellect and, and she's just like kind of extra. And like my energy was like that and, and can be like that too. And raising her hand in class. And so that was really empowering. That's, you know, I need to find that teacher and write them a letter of thanks. Um, but yeah, I had some some champions in the the arts that helped me survive, and then I kind of swung to that end of the spectrum and really em and embraced like writing and reading and you know fuck math and science because like they didn't believe in me and now like so I don't believe in them even though I wanted to like be an astronaut and that's a whole other story. But um, <laughs> I, I went to space camp. You know, that was that was a serious thing for me at the time. But moving into high school. Oh, you know, like the back of my book says, like, I really, like, I did fine academically. Um, my home life was now stable because I was living with my father. Um, that's, you know, Heather and I were starting to not really get along because we were teenagers in high school. And I always felt jealous of her for like fitting in. And yeah. she was like tall and beautiful and social. And like, she seemed to just understand like what to say and when and what to do and like how how to be whereas I was like okay I'm on this soccer team but like I like was the last one picked and like nobody wanted me to be on a team and then I like I don't I don't like I wasn't oh my god I forgot about this until this moment I wasn't sad I didn't know where to go and I can't believe they even let this be a thing SADD students against destructive yeah, yeah. Decisions. I found the one fucking group that Wait, like what is it what does it stand for now? Students Against Destructive Decisions. Oh my god. Wait, <laughs> when did that change? Because it used to be drunk driving, and then the, apparently they just made it overall what? any destructive decisions. You yeah, I think it's like they wanted it to be probably like from, you know, students are, are driving this group and not parents or mothers. What is it, dare or something? Or no. Mad What's was the, the mother's, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But so that's this was funny. The version of that. They were like, yeah. oh, hey guys, we have more deaths from uh, opioids now instead of drunk driving. So we should probably like loop that in somehow. Okay. <laughs> so that was how cool I was. Um, I, I just floundered. I didn't know. Um, I, I think that it really hurt me to switch schools in from, you know, sixth, sixth grade. I was doing great. Um, I would say I was even like a popular kid because I was really hyper and made people laugh. And even though I outwardly didn't look popular, like I, I was so social and good until we switched schools. And then I was from Trashabaugh, right? I was from like this trashy school and nobody liked me. And I would sit alone at lunch and that really carried over to high school. Um, and I changed a lot. And it's one of those experiences, you know, you look back and you're like, I'm grateful for so much of what came from that shitty experience because yeah. I could have just been a total 
total asshole otherwise like maybe that trajectory I would have like turned out to be really um mean and and I don't know but I mean either way there's so much good that came out of it in the end I can see that now but high school was rough it was really hard and you know I taught like the first chapter I'm like of the book I'm really angsty in the hallway and you know then I find the thing that kind of saved me if you know it's a natural segue maybe to (laughs) what came after I guess yeah Oh, but it sucked. I didn't like it. <laughs> so was college always on your radar after high school? Yeah. And then what was, I mean, what was that like getting away for not living with one of your parents? Your sister's not around. <laughs> like... Yeah. Well, interestingly, that's when my sister and I got close. I think we needed that distance and we yeah. were both kind of figuring out who we are. And and you realize just how special that bond is and that there is literally only one other person in the world who understands so many important things in the same way that you can. So we like completely stopped fighting really when she, um, she went to school in New York and I went to, you know, just an hour plus away to Michigan state, but that distance helped. And it was also great to be away from home away from, you know, I I liked being in a place where there was diversity for like the first time ever. Um, I had a friendship with somebody I'll never forget it too. And it's embarrassing to say this, but like we were friends for like a year when one day we went to the cafeteria and he was, he loaded up his plate with a ton of food. We sat down and then he wouldn't eat any of it. And he was checking his watch and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, well, like, I can't eat until like, I'm, you know, my religion, this and that, like, I think it was Eid. He he couldn't break his fast until a specific time. And I'm like, you're Muslim. You're Muslim. You're Muslim. Like my brain exploded because even, it took up until like the first year of going to state and it being around other otherness and diversity for me to like, you know, my, until then I only associated Islam with 9-11. My, the exposure I had to Islam was 9-11. We watched it in seventh grade uh, live. And then like, I didn't know a single Muslim person. I, I, there was nothing I remember from school teaching me about it. So I only saw it as this thing where like, oh, well, Muslims are bad, obviously, because they did not. How much of that do you attribute and, to the all the all the church going any of anything or was a that... lot of it okay because they, they <laughs> you know and the same, i mean we see this it's, it's all around the world and it manifests in so many different ways it's definitely not you know i feel like i have to say all this because people are going to like attack me for for saying anything bad about something that's important to them but like hey you write a book you have to start being open to criticism and this is a part of that too right well, like, i think hey, what i mean you're... and correct me if i'm wrong i think what you're saying though is like that's what you were kind of trained to think and you were yeah. all of a sudden like now your mind is open to thinking otherwise. Yeah, no, it was, it was very much the messaging um, that, you know, if, if it came up at all, like Christianity, like we are right, they're wrong. Um, yeah. And they're, we're good. They're bad. That's very, very simply. Against... <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was just an example. Like that story was like, you know, I probably wouldn't have given him a chance had he led with like, if he was visually Muslim, um, or, you know, cause he sounded American cause he went to American schools overseas and stuff. Like I probably wouldn't have given him a chance and like, but you know, like, thank God I got to go to college and have an experience that, that did this for me, not only with that specific view I had toward that specific religion, but like everything yeah. it was, it was, and still is like, um, well, when I was teaching at, you know, the university level, like, you know, unlearning and learning, unlearning and learning and having all of your beliefs challenged and getting to decide for yourself at the end of the day. I think that was the most powerful thing was like, oh, now I have, you know, a year worth of experience with, you know, apparently my Muslim friend um, 
to like make a decision now about what I think about Islam, even though you shouldn't ever, I think, take a tiny little anecdote and make a huge opinion on it. But yeah. um, obviously at a school with 50,000 students, many of whom are from international, uh, who are from international students, I, I quickly learned, um, you know, that same kind of story repeated itself in various ways over the, the three years I was at MSU. And um, I, I, I can't imagine life without that experience, let alone the study abroad experiences that I got to do while I was there, including Senegal, which is what I yeah. you know, wrote about. It just, it, and it seems like, and I'm not, I'm not going to branch off, I promise, but it seems like such a, <laughs> such a, like an American way of thinking to be like, Oh, what we think, like we're right and you're wrong. Uh, and oh, I, yeah. and every religion seems to think that way. <laughs> like <laughs> their religion's right and everyone else is wrong. I'm like, but wait a second. <laughs> There's, yeah. How, how is yeah. that possible? Um, and it just seems really naive to believe that because like, you know, if one third of the population is right and then what two thirds is wrong and they just don't, yeah. you know, like it's, it's very, uh, Oh yeah. All that stuff. I could go down that rabbit about... hole a long time. Um, <laughs> but so did you said you kind of got the depression and anxiety started kicking in like in high school. Is that right? Depression. Yeah. Depression. Um, did that follow you? <laughs> did that follow you to college or did that kind of diminish a little when you were able to get away from everything? I mean, it, yeah, it follows you just like most problems that people have, they follow you no matter where you go. And I, at the time, um, let's see, I, so I would say I experienced it in waves, you know, like it, it, depression can look different for different people. And it was something that um, I became really good at hiding because I had, you know, especially when I went away to college, I opened up a lot more being away from home. I felt like I could be more myself and open and goofy. And there was no longer this like ranking system and popularity and like mean kids and people so much. So I, I really thrived, uh, for that reason. Um, but the depression didn't go away. It, it was probably minimized or muted at times, but, um, it, you know, depression's a sneaky bitch. Like I'd wake up sometimes with like lead in my body and, and a weight on my chest. And I felt, you know, my body would just be shut down and my mind would be fog. And, you know, I, if I walked out into the world and I would go to rugby practice or, you know, class, um, people expected, you know, Katie and Katie is energetic and outgoing and, even though like, as like now I feel like I'm a more interpreted person than I was then. Um, anyway, that's a whole separate <laughs> thing. I, I, I really, I think that exacerbated a lot of the challenges around having depression is when your personality is so very much like outwardly different than the symptoms of depression. Um, it made it really hard. In fact, impossible most of the time to talk about or let people know about, especially when you're surrounded by mostly people, like the people I was close to family, um, fixers right the yeah. people who like you talk about that in your um i think the episode with anxiety i listened to um which yeah. was so good um i you know and i can be try to be a fixer too but when i would dare to share how i was feeling or really lack thereof and feeling numb it was like well what's wrong why are you sad well yeah. depression isn't feeling sad like first of all it, and, it, and so it became you know if it if I wanted people to understand, like now I'm the educator here I am in like the worst possible state of being. And now I, it's up to me to educate you so that you know how to respond to the situation, which is really just like, I need space or 
um, maybe it would be nice if you could just be here with me and not, but like not try to be like, well, let's get to the heart of this and fix it. Yeah. You know, maybe you just need to go for a walk or do some yoga. All of those are great things that are part of my health practice right now um, that help combat uh, depression and anxiety. But whew, it would just, it, it would kind of, it was like echoey of the religious stuff when I wasn't, that wasn't working. And the messaging was, well, you're doing it wrong. Why don't you do this? Um, with depression, it was a little bit like that in the sense that whenever I opened up about it, um, there was messaging that was like, well, this is fixable. And so I did go to therapy though. I will say that, um, it got really, really bad in high school, um, on a couple of occasions. Um, I, I probably don't want to go too much into it, but I self-harmed for a while yeah. and that's what prompted, um, going to therapy because I was like, well, I don't think this is good. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I think I need some help. And thank God there was like that class that nobody wanted to take. That was like some kind of humanities class that one time there there's like a worksheet, you check boxes about how you're feeling. And I was like down the line, like all the worst answers and my score was really low. And I was like covering it. And then at the end of class, I remember I had just started self-harming and I, um, I went to the teacher and I was just like, what do I do if I got a bad score? Like, I'm hurting so much and I don't know what to do. And she's the first person to be like, I got you. Like, we're, and she connected me with a school counselor who connected me with an outside counselor. Um, and it wasn't like a particularly awesome experience, but it was the first, it needed to happen, um, was being in a space that recognized yeah. the things I was going through as, you know, mental illness. And, you know, I've got all sorts of opinions about diagnoses and how helpful they are or aren't, but you know, I needed, I needed to just be seen at the time. Um, not literally, I'm, I'm saying like seen as like a human who's hurting and not like tough, like suck it up. <laughs> it was kind of the response mostly outside of that. Um, and on and off through undergrad and a lot through grad school, all throughout grad school, I went to therapy and I'm in therapy now. I have it every other week practice um, with my counselor. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's <laughs> everybody should should have it what i mean i don't just have it because i'm struggling like i've been doing really well actually one of those weird people like thriving during the pandemic at points when i wasn't you know six months ago i was suffering really heavily from depression but um yeah therapy is has been everything for me absolutely so you uh do you go to college like with the idea of teaching english as a second language because you're at this point studying french and yeah, so I I didn't know what to do, right? So I actually spent my first year at a community college studying photography because the last two years of high school, I was part of yearbook and was walking around with my camera. I was a photo editor the senior year, and I loved interviewing people and taking pictures, but it turned out when that was in the confines of like a classroom setting, it took away all the freedom and fun, and I just decided to default with something I really liked, which was language. And it was connected to this idea of travel. So when I transferred to Michigan State, yeah, I uh, decided on French. And because I didn't have any examples of what you could do with the language except really teach it, I decided to pursue that path. But within the first year, um, sorry, the second year, I'd say at Michigan State, my teacher education classes were um, just like, you know, they were good. I had one really stellar teacher who, who I feel I learned more from about teaching by her example than like any, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or, you know, Vygotsky, I plus one, like more than anything, just her example of teaching um, made me want to be a teacher. And, but I did flip it a little bit in the sense that 
I still finished with my bachelor's in French and I took all the courses to become a secondary education teacher. So I would teach in the US, I'd teach French. I thought I could be that like inspirational teacher who got you excited about travel and you know that you could go to college and have your worldviews challenged too. But then I had my placement in high school and high school kids are just so shitty and they were so mean. And I, I don't have that gift. I don't have that gift at all. Um, you know, as soon as students would, you know, start like the few times I had to micro teach and they were giving me such a hard time. Um, I think it was my senior year. We had to do this. I'll never forget one student was like, why do we have to learn French anyway? This is America. We speak English. The rest of the world, you know, like you were saying earlier, right? Like, um, <laughs> like this mentality of like well it is basically it's the lingua franca and if people come here they should learn English. this is a waste of time I'm only doing this because i have to go to college and or i want to go to college and i have to check that language requirement box and so i was like yep this isn't what i want to do in my life <laughs> um and thankfully very thankfully i did have an undergrad class that um like a gen ed um so to their credit because i know they can really suck uh that had a requirement to do volunteer work of some kind and i landed at the Refugee um, Development Center in Lansing. So I, I started out with like an assignment of like tutoring there for one semester. And it was such a profound experience working with this with this group of people that I went back on my own the next semester and was like a coordinator for volunteers and volunteered. And then a third semester, because um, happy, they're happy to have hundreds of volunteers every year, mostly from the school. Um, I actually like was a kind of an assistant in a classroom, like a night class with I remember there were like 20 refugees from like 12 countries and there were like over 15 languages represented or wow. something crazy. Um, it was, and they were all like here in Michigan, this place that up until I went to college, like everybody around me looked the same, acted the same, wanted the same things, believed in the same things, had the same trajectory. And I was just like, am I the only one that like sees that this is crazy? And um, so, you know, college was like, yeah, you know, you're not crazy. This is great. Um there are more of you out there to, you know, that are okay with going beyond all of those things. So I decided this is what I want to do. I want to teach English, um, I think to refugees, maybe to international students, but I really love that the teaching of the language went hand in hand with helping with the experience of acclimating to life here. Cause it's not easy. <laughs> um, it's really not, um, come to a new country, where it's a different language. And even if you already speak some, there's different religions, there's different sects within, you know, the religions here that are confusing for people. There are, you know, food is different, weather is different. Oh my God, the refugees, oh, when I was in grad school, there's a big Somali refugee population. And so imagine coming from like Eastern Africa to like minus 50 with windchill, Minnesota. Like there's a lot of work that needs to be done if, you know, to like properly yeah. help transition and, and welcome these groups of people. And I love that. I love that about the quote unquote teaching. I all, I often felt like that. And then the next 10 years of doing this was there was like an advisor, mentor, helper role in helping students have um, a positive like overall experience, not just like be able to pass their tests, you know, the English yeah. test or standardized tests that would provide them paths to citizenship or, you know, matriculating to the university from the English language program I was teaching in, whatever it might be. So that got me fired up. I got my master's in teaching English. Then um, after a year uh, working part-time in France, kind of a breather year, you know, before I went to grad school. Sure, a casual year why. in France. No big deal. Just a, little, a petite, <laughs> you know, year in France. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was an assistantship program that a lot of people would do um, if they were a language major. It existed all throughout Europe with Spanish and Italian and 
um, it was just like a year to breathe and have fun um, and confirm I didn't want to teach high schoolers because yeah. uh, they didn't want to learn French or English in the same way that like Americans didn't want to learn French. Um, but yeah, That's it funny. provided me a chance to explore, travel th- all throughout Europe and practice my French and learn a little bit of teaching. Was, so was in there. I just, that's really funny. Did you, so you had the parallel experience in France where the high schoolers were like, why, why we need to learn? That's my terrible French Yeah, they're like, this is very stupid. Yeah. I live in France. Yeah. Who wants to leave France? It's oh just so God, beautiful. that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, what they a were funny like, parallel. So just yeah, teenagers are just assholes everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that is, is the, the overarching <laughs> theme. Yeah. <laughs> that's the message I wanted to bring today. This has been great. Thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, that that does segue, though, like the the thing you've mentioned a number of times, and I'm curious, just like the history there is how much travel intrigued you and what what kind of like got that bug? Did you travel a lot when you were younger or did you like do no. one trip where you're like, I want to do this more often? What What happened there? No, it was we traveled within Michigan. You know, we, we'd go to um yogi bear camp and we'd like you know go to pennsylvania sometimes to you know spend a week buying amish cheese and camping and and that was great but that those experiences while wonderful didn't have anything to do with my desire to like go overseas um it was it was in high school um and i write about this in the beginning chapters about how i just you know that you know what i was saying earlier about looking around and seeing everybody kind of looking the same acting the same talking about the same things um and it it felt like travel would be a, like the antidote, like travel would be a way to go beyond all of that and, and see what else was out there. And I became especially fascinated with West Africa because, you know, French was one of my favorite classes, um, if not my favorite. And I would say yearbook, maybe a little bit more because it was very hands-on and um, it was really fun to practice skills. But French was great because it, he had little excerpts of cultures um, around the world where they spoke French. So obviously France, Switzerland, Belgium, but West Africa was very, you know, a lot of people see Africa and like it feels and looks really exotic. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I you don't think French. <laughs> I, like when I think French, no. I think France, I think Canada. I don't like Africa is not on the list of things. I yeah, think and about. it wasn't, it wasn't for me either until um, I can like picture the textbook too. It was like, has like a gargoyle on the front, um, you know, like it, like some cathedral in Paris. Um, but then there's like these tiny little hidden paragraphs about colony, like where colonists, where French colon- colonists went yeah. um, and Belgium colonists and, you know, just drew arbitrary lines around, you know, land in Africa and said, well, we rule here now. And so therefore French will be spoken here or yeah. English or whatever the colonial language was. So um, even though, yeah, so French is the official language um in senegal and much of western africa for because of that history yeah. but um most people if not all i'd say the vast majority of people's native um, language or mother tongue or dominant language is um one of dozens of languages like wolof well taranga the name of my book is wolof um for, and it actually means i should probably have led with this like it means hospitality it means much more than just hospitality it means um like human warmth like showing people human warmth um, if they're your guests, if they're in your home, yeah. if they're in your country. So I experienced that and loved that. And, you know, 12 years later, it's been 12 years since, um, I studied there. Uh, this, this is why I chose that word for, uh, the book and the tagline you know, is like a story of belonging because yeah, I, I felt like I didn't belong in, in small town Michigan. I felt like I, I, there was more 
out there. I didn't know what, but you know, there was definitely a component of like escapism, like, you know, nothing's working out for me. I'm not like connecting with, you know, the people, community, belief systems. Um, like I, I feel like I need to leave and I want to leave and I want to distance myself from all of it. And it just looks really fucking cool. I want to go somewhere different and have adventures. And um, I, yeah, I just, I really wanted to see and do it all. I felt also for a while, I felt really angry and resentful about like having kind of a sheltered upbringing. Um, but I, I do also feel a little bit beyond that now. And thank you to therapy for this, right? Like um, I, I think that the, those in my life, you know, around me, my parents, my dad, um, my loved ones, like they were doing the best they could based on what they knew and their yeah. upbringing. And yeah. um, like, I, I, and so like, I'm no longer in that same space, but at the time I was like, I have a lot of catching up to do. I have to go out there and see and do it all. Um, so Senegal was on my radar because of French class. And so I owe Madame Potter, um, who is featured in the book a little bit too, and who I'm in touch with to this day. Um, she, you know, not only included that in the curriculum, she could have easily skipped over it if she wanted to. Um, she had a, she also brought in um, a return, like a student of hers from the past who just graduated with a bachelor's degree and was going to do the Peace Corps in Senegal. So she not only came and talked about her study abroad experience that she did during college, but she talked about what the Peace Corps was. And that, you know, stretched my mind even further about like, oh my God, there's all these things you can do out there in the world. Um, I want to learn and know more. And um, that woman wrote letters every month um, that Madame Potter would like read to the class. And I ultimately ended up writing this person directly to and she wrote me back and I have the letter here and there's an excerpt in the book from her. It's come like really full circle in a way. Um, because she was like, I also wanted to go out and see and um, like make things, make my mind up about things too and explore. And um, that that was my big connection to Senegal and um, using French there and um, spending a semester studying there and meeting the best friend of my life and then now writing a book 12 years later about it. That's awesome though. And I, I want to connect you with uh, one of my best friends is the person that replaced Miss Potter. Yeah, my friend oh my Michelle now teaches French at the junior high and the high school. No kidding. Oh, yeah. yes, please do. Because I went back and actually spoke in Madame Potter's class. Um, nice. I think that's why I was going to say you guys probably like do something like that. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that kind of stuff. It just takes one little seed to, to plant that could grow into something like it did for me. I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just think that's a fun, fun little connection. Um, and I, I want to say to people just... Like, I haven't left the country ever. I think I went to Canada when I was 19. Um, <laughs> it was not cultural, I assure you. Uh, but I did live in California for a short stint, uh, especially, you know, the older I get, the the shorter time it feels like, which is crazy because it's one of many of my, like, book ideas that I've started outlines for, which is just, like, two years in Los Angeles. And it's, like, only two years? Like, so many stories. But um, Right. Whereas Southern California as a whole can definitely be very reminiscent of Oakland County, Michigan, where we grew up, where it's just like a lot of fucking white people. Um, I was like super low income living in the valley and like the dirty part of Hollywood and uh, just like they're getting out <laughs> for that mm. amount of time. And, and you can experience other cultures just by leaving like your state. I'm yes. sure leaving the country is a whole other 
thing that you can write a book about. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, but yeah, just I, I just for anybody listening that's like, well, I can't go to another country right now, but you can go yeah. like literally to like the next neighborhood. Yeah, in the next neighborhood. I mean, you can immerse yourself in any number of different cultures and like something yes. that might seem scary from the outside, like it isn't really mostly. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm so glad you said that because it is something that comes up when I tell people like briefly about my story and they're like, oh, I, I lost the chance to study abroad or have that kind of experience. And that that's actually what I'll say back is like, well, if you're actually interested in like getting out there, drive an hour to Dearborn where there's the most Arabic, like the biggest Arabic speaking population yeah. in the United States outside of the Middle East. That's the largest Arabic speaking population um, here. I, I hear just as much Spanish as I hear English, oh, yeah. you know, more depending on where you go. Yeah. It, it, it's so much more accessible to have that kind of experience if you're if you're curious about kind of being immersed in another culture or languages. Um, and you can, I mean, it's it's just so much more. It's simpler and easier than most people think. They think it's it's, you don't have to use the country. It's incredible the yeah. diversity in the United States. I'd go to a poetry circle thing every like Thursday night when I lived there, and I would see more black people on a Thursday night than I saw in my entire childhood in, in Michigan. <laughs> like, oh uh, and it's just like, oh, right, right. We're, there's more than just us in, in this country. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, it's, <laughs> and it's so easy for kids to like grow up in an environment and just kind of, you know, we, we naturally as humans fear what we don't know, what we're not around, what we're not exposed to. And yeah. so that's, that's where a lot of uh, uh, really, terrible shit starts so it's kind of like yeah. especially once you become an adult like it's up to you to really <laughs> put the like embrace that yeah <laughs> yeah and embrace different cultures and, and learn more um i think that's uh, that's one thing again see i will spin off on something for an hour but, <laughs> this no, is... but i'm glad you said that too because like it it's so important i don't want to pull in politics i'll say i'll start by saying that but like <laughs> look at how divisive um things have become just the past four years because of pointing out highlighting otherness always putting otherness at the forefront and highlighting that rather than like the things we have in common that you know if realistically speaking regardless of how people identify like we want 99 percent of the same things we want to feel loved we want to feel happy we want to have purpose with our work back to your um, maslow's hierarchy yeah. of needs yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're just focusing on like the one percent that we don't have in common. I mean, yeah. Um, so I just said that, and 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 a quick quick like little story about that. Like I remember that when I, I like I was old enough to remember this um, lack of exposure to otherness. Speaking of that, I remember seeing the first like I can remember seeing my first black person and looking up, pointing at them, and saying, "Mommy, why are they brown?" I have that memory that made it into like an essay I wrote when I was applying to like PhD programs, in fact. Um, and now here I am like as an adult hearing my three and five year old nieces saying phrases in English or French, Wolof, they have, you know, Heather's just done such an incredible job with like doing what, you know, she recognized as a need and a gap um, that we didn't get as kids to the same extent or maybe at all. And, you know, they have dollies that look like the world. They have dollies that look like the country we live in and not just their immediate communities. And I'm so proud of Heather for that. And I'm so excited for the girls to have that exposure because look at what it leads to, at least empathy. It just straight yeah. up leads to the ability Absolutely. to put yourself in other people's shoes, those refugees, those asylum seekers, those, you know, bilingual neighbors and know like 
there it's it's not only okay it's great to be different and there's so much to be learned from yeah. the difference and as something to use to be combative or disagree on it's it's a, it's a gift and that's one have. of the things that and and this is kind of the last thing i want to say about it but i disagree with my brother a lot on he doesn't believe college is like a big he's like oh well i should a piece of paper determine anything i was like but it's the actual like experience you have with people the the conversations the debates the like meeting people from different backgrounds like all of that that's where like mm -hmm. that's the college experience that's where you actually get an education in my opinion because mm -hmm. i agree like yeah. the piece of paper doesn't mean anything and the reason i'm retaking a fucking math class right now that i took <laughs> seven years ago and got an a and it's because i don't remember any of that shit so mm -hmm. it does like yeah that stuff doesn't really matter but all the stuff that happens between the lines uh that's where all that comes from and and i'm i'm glad that we got to talk yeah. about that um i want to shift gears a little bit the lens if you will uh <laughs> and talk about kind of being a creative person and <laughs> what those outlets were for you or are for you um obviously writing is a big one um what else what other avenues did you go down? And then we've, we talked briefly via messages, but what did that look like in the, in the form of validation and what's, what's your current healthy or unhealthy relationship with that? So there's like nine questions. Yeah. Um, well, what was the first one? Just like, what is it like to be what, creative? Well, what, what, what are your creative yeah. avenues? Like, what did you do other than writing or what do you do other than writing? Uh, honestly, growing up, I mean, my creative avenue, what, um, besides, I think, normal kid creative stuff was writing. Um, it mostly emerged out of the need to express myself when I had no other avenues for expression. So like it wasn't like, yeah, journaling. It was yeah. it was journaling. Um, I have at least, and they're like 10 feet behind me in this tote box. It says, Katie's most precious possessions on it. It's at least 50 journals. And I'm looking at probably a dozen more because... Now that I'm like full-time a creative person, I, I feel like I want to own that. No, I'm a full-time like small business owner and writer right now. I'm in my sixth month of doing it. Um, I, 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 it's, it's way beyond journaling, obviously. If I'm publishing a book, it's not just like taking my journals. Um, there's good sources, but um, they are, they, at the time I wrote them were just ways to get out of my chest and heart. What like I, I couldn't say to anybody else yeah. and thank God for, you know, literacy and the ability to write because it, I think, was my saving grace for many years. Um, it needed to be part of a, a larger framework of, of support within, you know, with, you know, healthcare and, and having this uh, support system that way. But that was the main thing growing up. Um, it, I do have, um, I do have a thing with like paper and stationery that I guess I should give some credit to. I guess it doesn't feel like quote unquote real art. So like, I am experiencing little bits of like imposter syndrome here and there about like, am I a writer? Am I an author? Am I an artist? Like I have, um, downtown here, there's an art association. I'm a member. I have a little box with my art in it. And yet I don't feel comfortable yet saying I'm an artist because I don't have what I think I like the credentials or the experience. Um, I, this is something I'm, you know, talk to me again in a month and I'll be like, hell yeah, I'm an artist. Yeah. I, you, you've caught me at this like juncture in my life where I'm really leaning into discomfort to kind of quote Brené Brown. I think I just did um, leaning into it in a way that I haven't before, um, which is a lot less rigid and like, Oh, well you need a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or a certification to do X, Y, Z for years. I've been making paper beads and giving gifts of like, um, 
bracelets where each bead is from a piece of paper from like Saudi Arabia, France, um, Senegal. And I thought it would be such a cool gift to give people the gift of like the world on their wrist. And like, yeah. that's become such a thing that like, that's part of Turinga market now. Um, and you can, oh, cool. you know, buy those pieces like, at you know the market and, and at the art association and if they didn't take so long to make it probably have them online too but <laughs> um yeah i mean i that has been really it's been really freeing um because being within like being in the world of academia for a decade has it has i have no regrets like i'm so grateful for it and maybe it's not over um maybe this is you know it, things might just look different in the future but there is so much structure and there are standards and you know they're not necessarily bad but there are i feel like i've like broken out of a cage in a way um even though i loved teaching i love teaching i feel like getting to stand at my little farmer's market booth every saturday and talking about senegal is teaching people are like oh so like like it's Africa is not a country; it's a continent. I'm like, yes, thank you for coming. <laughs> I yeah. I'm still educating. It's just different now. I'm really glad and excited for all the ways that like my teaching skills are transferring into what I'm doing now. But I'm also, you know, when I say I journal my whole life, I also never shared any of the writing. I never, you know, I I started to play around with non-journaling and other forms of writing, but I never shared it because there was so much fear and. A lot of the fear was about like, what are people going to think? And are they going to judge me? And these are all things I couldn't say out of fear. So I'm not going to share the writing. And um, thankfully, a writer's group back in Michigan helped me start the process of sharing. Um, and then long story short, um, I am now, you know, I think it's obviously symbolic. Maybe I moved to California and um, with my husband and, and we're kind of starting a new life out here where I, f I do feel way more comfortable and like things are looser and warm like figuratively and literally warmer and people are more receptive to the things that I think and feel um and even even I mean I live in like a really religious community believe it or not like there's it's just different here religion yeah. looks and feels different here um it's not like oh well if you're religious then you you can't like like refugees are we don't want immigrants or refugees like there seems to be things that go hand in hand with being religious back home in michigan that like just do not go hand in hand here yeah. and it's more cultural than religious um but yeah i could go off on so many tangents here i guess just, <laughs> i really should bring it in um because i've already lost your original question about like okay so it's like creativity and the avenues and now it's like now it's writing and it's out there it's it's writing and i'm even playing around with poetry i have um you know, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way here that I plan on doing this year. I'm going to a writing retreat this summer. Natalie Goldberg, she is like my my teacher, my my mentor, my life guide right now. Um, I have a women's writing group that I created here locally. That, and wow. um, I just couldn't find, you know, the writing tribe I wanted. So following the advice of Elizabeth Gilbert from Big Magic, uh, Fear and Creativity, she said, can't find your tribe, make it. So I was like, okay, done. And we've been meeting for like five months now. And this year I actually have like one book by Natalie Goldberg per month that we're like following and I create writing prompts and I'm going to her workshop, two of them back to back this summer. It might be one of the last she ever does. But that, you know, that's what my year looks like. I, I yeah. am in my first year of feeling totally, completely liberated and and experimental and excited and scared as hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> but feeling, you know, all of the years of therapy, all of the years of working really hard to 
improve my health and find inner peace and and be okay like it's it's showing now because now that I'm opening myself up and my story and my writing and my creativity to the world there's you know criticism coming back at me there's you know it's been like my hands are sweating talking about this because I'm I'm thinking about how um like maybe I should have changed this part of the book because this person responded badly to it but I'm also in the process of moving beyond that like my story is my story my story is my story and your reaction to it um that's you get to have that. Yeah. Um, you know, my therapist says all the time, like, give people the gift of having their own opinions. Like, give them the gift of having their responses and not being responsible for it. It's not yeah. your job to make other people happy. It's not your job. And this was, like, blasphemous to me. Because I'm like, no, I'm just, like, <laughs> this is what I do is I try to make everybody happy and, and toe the line. And um, and it's actually been, it's it's like a two-way street. What's the saying? Or there's something, somebody I want to quote here where by telling my my truth, it's like two-way liberation for the people who are going to hear it and be like, oh, Katie, you know, if they listen to this podcast, my family, 99% of it's going to be news to a lot of loved ones. And my, you know, I've hesitated in doing things like this for so long because of how that would hurt them or yeah. how they might think they failed because, Oh my God, Katie's swearing. Oh my God. Katie's saying like, Katie is saying this or Katie hid this from us. Like they may view it as something that I don't see it as. Like yeah. I was protecting myself. They create by their own narrative based on. Yeah. yeah. And I'm at a place now where they can have that reaction and my, my health and my inner peace can't be taken away from me. Where does that personal validation come from? Uh, <laughs> on a list of my therapists or what? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, um, and I, I ask, uh, I, I guess as a host and as a person, cause like I, I struggle with validating myself in that arena and, and that's, I think that's a big thing. Answer, and yeah. I think that's, that's a huge difference, um, between being successful or not successful is really being able to be successful in your own eyes, whether or not the outside world is saying that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And actually when you said, I don't want to listen to your episode and you're talking about the album you put out and how you felt great about it. And then, you know, didn't do as well as you thought and you didn't sell yeah, as many so as like, you thought. Whatever. And how <laughs> is it successful? It's obviously not successful. That really like my heart hurt, even though like up until six months ago, um, I probably would have thought exactly the same way if like, that happens and it probably will happen with my book. Like I'll be lucky, right? I sell like a hundred, I'm self-publishing. I don't, I think that um, where I am in my journey um, is to answer the question about like, where do you find that self-validation? I think I'm finally surrounded by and surrounding myself by people and authors and writers and creatives who are living, breathing, walking examples of people who put out their gifts into the world and like let the criticism bounce off of them and they don't follow rules and they don't have a you know the credentials that a lot of people think they should have or masters in in you know fine arts but like you know they're successful they're successful in that they feel you know pride for their work they feel they happy with it it brought them something like joy or peace and then like maybe financially like natalie goldberg to use her example again with writing down the bones has been like a life-changing book um freeing the rudder within i she and others like her have been models and examples i never had before that showed 
they're, they're like giving me permission to do certain things or feel certain ways that I previously thought like, oh, I'm not allowed to feel like that. I'm, I'm no, if I don't, um, you know, get, you know, all positive reviews back from my students feedback, then I'm not a success. You know, I would, yeah. you know, consistently for 10 years get like 19 positive reviews, one negative, And I considered, I didn't feel like a success, you know, the, the one student who never came or who got a B plus cause they didn't like turn it in on time. And like, I got a negative review and it's on my record forever. Like I'd obsess over it and I wouldn't read my reviews for, you know, my student, um, the feedback from students for like six months because I'd feel so much anxiety and stress over it. I just wasn't, you know, at a point where I could, <laughs> I could like take it in and not let it crush me. Now yeah. I am. And that, yes, it's therapy, but it's also now, um, intentionally choosing who I have in my life as friends, um, as role models, as teachers, and between Natalie Goldberg and Jack Kornfield and Julia Cameron, I have examples of people who, I, you could say, take a non-traditional path. Like when Natalie held writing workshops, she just like put up a poster on the wall and said, you know, pay me $10 and you can come for eight weeks. And she just sat there and like threw out ideas for writing prompts and, and facilitated it. And my gut, when I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, but like, where was your master's degree? Where was your teaching credentials? Like, how could you, how could you? And not only did she do it, she's like sold millions of copies of this book and is one of, she's just a world famous writer and she and others give me permission to, I think, um, that I had never gotten before, never viewed, never gotten to see examples of. And it's, um, I think it's that more than anything is just having a huge influx of that. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> It's, it's awesome. It is. I got to find me some of that. Yeah. That's, that sounds fantastic. You know, to your, to your um, comment that you said in another podcast, I sound like a groupie. Like I'm constantly like, no, this to is doing uh, my, my validation cycle is just doing fucking somersaults in my head right now. Every time you say that. Well, Cause you, you said something like, well, so much resonates with me because I feel like I'm just like five minutes, you know, uh, you know, like if we're running the race of life, I think you're like right there. Like, well, this makes it sound like I'm ahead of you in life. And I didn't mean for it to no, like that. I, but I will like agree I with just, you. On that. <laughs> like I was just feeling the way you were feeling. Like when you said, um, you know, I, I just want to find like I'm ready to get to the thing and be fixed or healed. Like I'm ready to like, like whatever the answer is. I'm just like, I'm so tired of whatever. I just want to be fixed. Yeah. That resonated with me because that's what I thought, too until I and really until my new therapist who has like a whole different paradigm of like I think thinking about mental health and our physical health and health in general um where the base assumption is that there's nothing wrong with you which I was like mm, look at this like huge list of diagnoses and like I can I want to fight you um and she's like that's fine like tell me about it <laughs> but then my doctor echoed that and he was like, yeah, I believe that like everybody like is well at their whole, like at their center, they are whole and well. And I was like, uh, I just like, you know, I, I was only receptive to these messages because of how badly I was doing, because I did have panic disorder because I was suffering so badly from anxiety that I thought I was having a heart attack and I went to the fucking ER and because I had palpitations that went from weekly to every other night to every day to like almost 24 seven that I met with like a surgeon who was like, yeah, we can like cauterize part of your heart and that'll stop. And I'm like, I think I need to slow down. <laughs> Quit <Yeah>. my job. 
because um, during that period, I was in a non a form, non-formal teaching role for two years. I traveled internationally as like an international student recruiter and advisor as global outreach coordinator. It was that's a whole separate story. But all of that to say, I always thought, always thought like, well, I just need to like find the right approach, method, technique, medication, therapist. Like there's going to be a finish line. Yeah. And my current therapist is like, just breathe, but like, there isn't one. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's 43 minutes left and I'm definitely finding a new therapist. Um, but thankfully <laughs> I, st- I stuck with her because um, I hate to use cheesy language like this, but like, okay, I worked for like an assisted living Alzheimer's dementia like thing for a year in high school and college and their t-shirts said you know it's about the journey not the destination which was like a morbid way of being like hope you had a good life because like you're kind of at the end of it you're gonna die soon um I I guess I feel that way (laughs) (laughs) I know we had to wear them (laughs) these t-shirts with sunsets on them it's like could you get a better marketing person anyway um (laughs) You know, and what's really cool is across all of these like disciplines, I love surrounding myself. I feel safe surrounding myself by books. Like, so I've got <laughs> a book on writing here. I've got the book, A Guide Through the Perils and Promises of Spiritual Life, Jack Cornfield, A Path with Heart. Like two years ago when I sat down with my new therapist, she's like, you know, trying to feel me out. Like, do you believe in God? Are we going to use that language? I was like, no. And she's like, oh, okay. Um, how about spiritual? And I think I said the words like, I fucking hate that word. <laughs> 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 and here two years later, with my side braid like going you know I meditated right before this and I'm like holding this I like literally hold this book to my heart when I'm done reading it because of how much it feels like truth and like what is real (laughs) um you know these books these authors their messages like across their genres they all have this underlying message and theme and this includes all the self-help books too of like the moment the present moment is the practice like Every waking moment that you're alive, you, the good times and the bad times, the challenges um, and difficulties, they're all part of the practice. There is no end destination, There, is, which is really hard for like a high achiever. Like I, you know, I want to take the test and get my gold star to like have a, like a, this entire bookshelf to my left here is both memoirs and like, you know, like a yogi's guide to joy, you know, man's search for meaning, lost connections, book on books on yoga and uh, meditation and things like I have the Bible and the Quran, you know, around here too, because I no longer see them as like the enemy or like things that hurt me, but sources of wisdom that like I get to ultimately choose, like whether or not like I hear that message or like believe it. Um, but it's all like, <laughs> I'm like the hippie. Everybody always made fun of me for being now, but um, like, it's all one. It's all, like the connection I can like feel now to people and to these messages is, is, is really beautiful and universal. And I think that it's been the most freeing thing I've ever experienced to like let go of this idea, this attachment to like being well or better or fixed. So yeah. for what that's worth, like, I'm not saying that I'm no, right. I, or and I wrong, don't know but... if I edited it differently, but like, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to say like the, I think my whole quote was like, not to say that I'm broken, but I can't think of a better way to like, yeah say what i'm trying to say because uh no and i think it's just kind of what you just said and in a much more elegant and beautiful way is just like uh finding peace within yourself and and your space and your like place in life and realizing you kind of have control over a certain amount and and kind of letting go of the stuff you don't and and it's it's 
that's great. I mean, no wonder you're a writer. Like, obviously, I could pull quotes from everything you just said. And <laughs> you know, it's so crazy about that. So, first of all, thank you. But like, what's so crazy about that is, even though I I'm meaning everything that I'm saying right now, and I feel I feel pretty good. I still have like that muscle that again, my therapist like helped me think about it like a muscle, like that well-worn muscle that for, you know, 28 years was really hard on myself, you know, that I'm, you know, is outweighed a little bit, maybe more by these other muscles, figuratively speaking, um, that have come from hard work and therapy. Like it's immediately, as soon as I was done speaking, it like, it's not as loud as it was, but the voice was like, shut up like you you know like this voice of like who do you think you are or that wasn't good enough or you should have said it differently so i i think that's actually really powerful to 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 share too because i think it's so common and i think that a lot of people who who read about spiritual things or meditation or whatever they think that like the ultimate goal is like no more chit chat in your mind or no more like negative self-talk or no more like you are, you have inner peace or you'd like you're enlightened or awakened. It's more like you just learn to, you strengthen your skills of awareness so that you recognize that those voices are not who you are. They are, they are happening. They're meant, they can be useful, but you are not your thoughts and you are, you the more you increase that awareness and, and strengthen those muscles through various practices, you know, the more, the less that they rule your fucking life. That muscle of like, I need people, like, I want people to know that um, if something just came across as like polished or eloquent or like, I, there's still that tendency to do that. But oh, I yeah. also want to share that sort of backstory that like there, there is still, and probably always will be those like negative self-talk loops. Or yeah. You like, got to completely the retrain that part of your head. Well, I, I want to mention again, your, your book comes out and I will put the link in the, in the description and everybody can check it mm, out and thank you. I'm excited to finish it myself. Uh, is there anything that I didn't touch on? I mean, there's a billion subjects I want to talk to you about, I, <laughs> but is there anything that you wanted to discuss on here that I haven't t- talked about or touched on? Oof. I mean, of course, a lot, <laughs> but I guess as things pertain to the book, since you just finished on that note, I'd say if people are interested, um, yeah, you can go to the link and find it there. You can buy it directly on Amazon or through me. So I would just say, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a story, uh, that I was really lucky to get to experience and I'm really excited to share, um, and anybody who's ever felt like maybe they don't belong or they've struggled with connecting, um, I think you'll find some some universal kind of truths in this story, which takes place in a place most people haven't heard of. And um, I think that's exciting and healthy. And um, I would really actually love to know people's feedback because every Saturday I get to talk to people at the farmer's market about Senegal and like have stories and conversations. It's incredible. But now I'm in this situation where the book's going to go out to people that I haven't met and I won't get to talk to. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm feedback hungry um, because I, I, I do want to like make my life about this now, like being a writer, being a creator. Um, and so, and I want to be connected to the people who are engaging with it. So I think that's what I'd say. And then I hope we can talk for like five more hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, when we, uh, when we hang up here, I'm, I'm, I'll send you my number cause I want to definitely keep in touch and I think yeah. we have too much in common. And once the, uh, some of the mom stuff is not as fresh as it is, <laughs> we, we can dive down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I love this. I'm so thankful to Heather for 
for setting this up. And... Thanks, Heather. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so, so glad. I think this, the timing is just so perfect too. Um, and I'm really, really grateful to you for this podcast. Like I, I took my dog for a walk today and listened to the one on anxiety. Um, and, you know, I was nervous about this. My heart was palpitating and I was not feeling good. And everything that you, you guys talked about in the episode made me feel better. And then I came home, I meditated and then it was just wonderful. And so what you're doing is great. It is making the world a little smaller with every conversation. And I'm actually really looking forward to listening to more. I love you for saying that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's like, uh, yeah, that's, that's all I ever want. Why can't everyone say uh, that to me all the time? Um, no, I, 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 I really, really appreciate it. And and it's these these moments now that I try to really like hold on to and remember in like a week when I'm looking at download numbers and being like, wait a minute. Uh, so yeah, thank you, you, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for thank sharing you, and, and talking to me. And I, I messaged you my number and a link to a funny brand van song, and I hope you enjoy both of them. Thank you, Justin. Go have dinner right. and um, bon appetit. Oh, next time. French again. All right. <laughs> thank you. I'll talk to you Bye. later. <laughs> All right, we are back with Jenny Helms, licensed clinical marriage and family therapist, and we have more listener questions. So this is going to be another exciting segment of Ask a Therapist. Heather asks, um, this is very interesting. When a kid sees a therapist, how much info is shared with the parent and what are the privacy boundaries there? Uh, secondary question, should the parents see the same therapist so the therapist has like a more well-rounded picture of what's going on? I'm very curious about this as a kid that went to therapy as well as a person that went to therapy as a kid. I'm not a kid currently. Um, and you know, like, I don't know what's involved there because when you're a kid, it feels like you don't actually have any rights in that regard. So, uh, this is kind of right up your alley, right? Marriage and family therapist. So, Give me yeah. the give me the dirt. Dish it give out. Give me the dirt. <laughs> okay. This isn't like necessarily I don't have a better way of framing this than Bible truth. So forgive me for my <laughs> biblical roots or like <laughs> my Mormon roots or whatever. But um this isn't necessarily so I will give you my perspective. Um most of the time therapists will not tell parents anything that's going on in the kiddo sessions, unless it's something that the kiddo is doing that is harming themselves or another person. At least that is how, so with my teenage clients, if they're engaging in behaviors that are going to harm themselves or another person, then that's when, you know, I would, I mostly encourage them to actually be the one to tell their parents Yeah. if, I, if that's a possibility. Cause I want to partner with them in that. And it's more of a like, Hey, we're, we're going to have to tell them this. And I tell them up front, like I, when I do the HIPAA spiel, I tell them about what HIPAA represents and the things and the reasons we'd have to break HIPAA. And I tell them, by the way, if we're breaking HIPAA for this, I'd also have to tell your parents this as well. So I want to be very clear about that. And sometimes I'll go into detail about what that specifically means. Um, but if they're engaging in risky behaviors, uh, drug usage, certain things like, you know, I, it's, it's definitely contingent on if it's risky and if they are, um, if it's something that is harming themselves or another person, then yes, I will tell their parents. Um, again, I try to like involve them in that process and say, how do you want to do this? Like, do you yeah. want to be the one to talk about it during a family session or 
You know, what does that look like? Now, when they're little, little, I don't know if I can speak the best to this because I don't typically work with clients under the age of 12, but it might look a little bit differently or it might look different in the sense that they might give more progress reports or talk about certain things because they're so little. Um, but I don't think the intent is ever to tell the kid of secrets. Like I'm not about telling kids secrets or teenagers secrets. Yeah. I think they need to have a safe place to talk about a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It's funny looking back. Like I feel like when I was a kid and this would have been 12, like, I don't know, pre 12 or maybe 12, but like definitely pre 12. Um, my mother would go in after my sessions for like, uh, I don't know if I can recap, I guess. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, with little kids. And that's what I was going to ask too. Like, does HIPAA apply to everybody? Like minors get the same rights in that way? Or, or is that like almost voluntary based on the parent? Like, how does that, how does that work legally? I know as a therapist, like to build that rapport, you don't want to just like go and spout all the stuff the teen tells you to the parents. But like, um, if the parents request that information, do you have to tell them? I don't. (laughs) So I, yeah, I don't personally, unless it's again, I, and I tell them, Hey, if it's something when it comes to them harming themselves or harming another person, um, anything that we'd have to break HIPAA for, of course you would know about it. Um, but I kind of share with them. I'm like, you know, I encourage them to talk to you about these things. It's not that I don't want them to have these conversations with you, but they also have to feel safe enough to have these conversations with you. And I don't know, like, to me, it's like working towards building that safety where they can have that kind of relationship if that's healthy. Right. Cause sometimes parents just want to know information and it's, it's not from a healthy space. Yeah. Um, they're overly enmeshed or there's something else going on. So there's that perspective, but sometimes, you know, they do want to know things and their kiddo is keeping things from them. Like just generally, like even just like how they're doing and, and the parent really deeply wants to connect. So in that regard, like I'm going to work on that family system and the relationships and creating safety. So over time that kid can connect, but it comes from them. It's not like forcing information out of their therapist. Like that doesn't actually heal anything. Yeah. You know? And so I, especially with that, I'm like, Hey, you are more than welcome to do family sessions. Like I'm a big believer, especially with my teenagers. I usually do two to three individual, and then we have a family session. And I introduce that in the beginning. And I just make that as part of the protocol. And like, it's not, I don't have to, it's not legally required, Yeah. but I've just found that that's been really helpful and effective for both the teenager and the family system. That makes sense. But so what about the second part? Uh, Would you recommend seeing the parent as well on an individual basis or does that not matter to you? So I wouldn't recommend doing that. So I, if they want to do family sessions with um, the kiddo, then that's awesome. And I'm all about family sessions and, and doing work there. But if they want to do individual work, I would recommend they actually see a different therapist because sometimes you can unintentionally, um, gosh, there's a term for this. Like reveal stuff. Not necessarily reveal, but when you know information, that makes you biased. Yeah, for sure. Right? And and the whole point of, of therapy is is holding an unbiased space for people to process things. So the minute you become biased, your therapy actually becomes less effective. 
unless like therapeutic essentially. And so that's why it's actually better for them to have a different therapist when they're working on their personal stuff. Yeah. I've had my own therapist, um, very early on. I was like, Oh, you could see my wife too. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And she's like, you know, if you ever told me something in confidence, I could let that slip in discussing something with her thinking like getting my stories mixed up, like thinking she told me, but you were the one, you know, and, and that puts me in a really awkward position and I wouldn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and think about like, if you knew something yeah, and the other person didn't say anything and then they're like, you know, you're processing something else with them and then you're just like, shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I wasn't sure about that. And I'm glad I, I have an answer there. Um, I don't have a kid, but like, Heather kind of brought that up in her question, and I was I was just curious because I I do feel like kids don't have the same. Well, I mean, legally, kids don't have the same rights as adults, but uh, yeah. as far as privacy goes, you know. Um, I I don't want to say that definitively, but unfortunately, I don't think kiddos have the same rights, and I think that's not great as far as like the therapeutic process. Um, because I do feel like if those things are to be discussed, it's important that it comes up in a family session or in a way that's actually safe. Yeah, with like a moderator. Like, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I won't lie. Like even in my process of therapy before um, I met the one that was like a really great fit and therapist for me, like that was half the battle in my head was like, why would I tell you stuff? Yeah. Because yeah. the dynamic with me and my parents at the time was like, if I ever did something like that wasn't right or if I ever broke the rules the punishment far outweighed the crime and so I kept a lot of that stuff inside because I was like I'm not gonna tell you because you're gonna tell my mom and then we're not gonna actually really process why I might be misbehaving or acting out in this way um you know what I mean so it's like I don't know I I don't think that that's a healthy good thing um yeah yeah, no, I agree completely. I mean, from the mindset of like an angsty teenager who doesn't trust anybody, I would be like, nope. uh, no, like, why would I? Absolutely not. And it's, it's funny. I see, uh, well, I don't really, I don't see, I don't see anybody anymore. God damn you, COVID. <laughs> but no, I was going to say, and when I would go to therapy and sit in the waiting room, I would sometimes see the like teenager and the parent sitting there too and i'm just yeah i'm running these scenarios in my head they're like oh man if you guys go in there together they're not saying anything (laughs) yep obviously i'm like projecting my own experience but (laughs) it's it's still funny to think about yeah and i it's funny i i try to get parents in as much as possible and usually the teenagers always like oh this is gonna be the worst and they're not about it but then by the end of session they're like i'm really glad we did a family session because they actually do process things. And I get I get to see really interesting interactions that I wouldn't normally see oh, I'm sure. just interacting with them. And, and yeah, I hope that, like, a lot of my teens know and realize that I'm team, like, just supporting them and them having a safe space to process things without it being enmeshed with their parents. Like, I do have parent systems that literally email me and will ask me questions. And I'm like, I, I mean, and I've had to have conversations with them. Like, these are not appropriate questions or like, you know, this is not, yeah, yeah, this is not my aim in therapy is not to push your agenda forward, basically. Yeah. How many times do you have to tell parents that you can't tell them if their kid is sexually active? (laughs) I I just, from a parent standpoint, I feel like that question would come like, is is little Timmy having sex? 
Um, yeah, you know, I did. I don't get that directly very often. Um, but I will say one time it was like it was found out by the parents, and that was that was interesting. That was yeah. Anyway, that was not not a great experience, but yep. We're gonna start another podcast called Therapy Stories with Jenny Helms, and we're just gonna we're just gonna get you sued eventually. I think is what's gonna. I know happen. it'll be it'll be great. The BSRB will take my license. Um, no, I mean hopefully this is totally de-identified. I'm like a teenager and a parent, and you know, yeah, and this experience because I've had multiple experiences with parents and this struggle, and I I want to honor that. I think what's at the heart of it is they're just so they actually really want to help their kid and they're just so scared of messing things up. And then they get like overly involved and try to do certain things or protect their kids from certain things that their kids have to go through to actually grow and work on their mental health. Um, But in the midst of it, you know, they're trying to help and they just end up, um, yeah, making it worse sometimes. So, well, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> I, I will probably edit out part of that answer because we ended that's up t- yeah. branching off so much, but that's all right. Um, We're just starting a new podcast over here, <laughs> like a, a full episode. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You just listened to my interview with Katie, as well as uh, Ask a Therapist with Jenny Helms, licensed clinical and marriage family therapist. Uh, Katie's book is fantastic. I hope you guys got a chance uh, or get a chance to to go on to Amazon and check it out. Again, it's called Taranga, T-E-R-A-N-G-A. And it you won't regret it. And you will learn just as much as I did, if not more, about Katie and, and some of her adventures. And there's going to be more books to come, which I'm even more excited about because uh, we have so much in common. It was such a, a great it was a great time talking to Katie, and I'll bring this up too because hopefully my wife won't, won't kill me for this. But uh, I think the the natural chemistry that me and Katie had was so like apparent. I was editing it, and uh, my wife goes, is, "Is is this something I need to worry about?" Because <laughs> uh, it, it's great. It's really great to have a connection to someone like that right off the bat, and and I cannot thank her enough. Go check out her book. Um, you can find the link in the description. And I'll probably also post about it on Facebook and Instagram and stuff so you guys can see it there. Email me any questions, especially any Ask a Therapist questions at Justin, what's my email address? Justin's friend request at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media at friend request pod and send me anything there. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you guys for listening. Again, shout out to all of my subscribers in Europe and Africa. It's crazy that there's people there listening to this. I love you guys. Thank you. Uh, I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.